Hey friend, welcome to She Said, She Said. Here on this podcast, I'm joining forces with a broad array of top-notch guests to share important life and career lessons, always with an eye toward insight, inspiration, and the drivers that help us build influence. I've spent three decades studying and learning the art of influence. Whether you're starting a business, raising money for a cause, advocating for a promotion, or running your own household, understanding influence will increase your chances of success, whatever your goals may be. Listening to She Said, She Said podcast may just be the smartest, most efficient investment you can make in you. Hey friend, welcome to the podcast. Today we're talking about the connection between influence and innovation and how influence can often take the form of reshaping entire industries or markets because a creative founder saw an opportunity to solve a problem. Today's guests are working to reshape the teen tween girl retail clothing market. Rachel Tabo and Netta Funk joined forces to create Woodley and Low. The company is a sustainable, body-positive clothing company and community for teen and tween girls. Now, for those of you listening who have teen or tween girls on your shopping list this holiday season, you already know the challenge associated with finding good, basic clothing items that are well-made, not ridiculously expensive, and most of all, not too, you know, revealing in a way that's frankly inappropriate for underage girls. Often, that challenge is further exacerbated by some retail companies who have messaging and advertising to young girls that also is overly sexualized, overly body conscious, and just simply not appropriate. This problem inspired Rachel, a former bakery owner and the mother of three girls, and Netta, the mother of three boys with significant experience in equity research focused on teen girls. But rather than just creating a brand, the duo focused first on creating a community. Ultimately, they let the girls drive many of the decisions about the brand and about the features that they wanted to see from a retailer. And that included things like building sustainability into the platform by making it easier to dispose of, recycle, and resell used merchandise right on the website. By putting a significant premium on listening, and letting their customer really inform the approach, they also built significant trust. And that trust, of course, is critical to brand loyalty and ultimately influence. Rachel and Netta are also tackling body image issues by rethinking traditional numerical sizing and instead opting for an alphabetical one. There is so much in this conversation that reinforces various dimensions and building blocks for influence. Many of the things that we've talked about previously on this podcast, spotting a problem and setting about to tackle it, but doing so in a way that builds community and collaboration and that emphasizes listening to feedback while at the same time, embracing growth and personal evolution by taking risks as entrepreneurs. Friend, wherever you may be in your own journey, this smart, thoughtful duo will give you much to think about, especially if you are a would-be entrepreneur and you have a startup idea in mind. Or maybe you have a problem that bugs you, but you hadn't thought of turning it into a business. Or maybe you're looking for great perspective on career pivots. For all of these reasons, I think you're going to love this conversation today. And it may also help some of you with last minute shopping ideas. Most of all, friend, I would love to know what you think. So once you have a chance to listen, please be sure to let me know. For now, here is my conversation with Woodley and Lowe co-founders Rachel Tabo and Netta Funk. Rachel and Netta, welcome to She Said, She Said. Thank you, Laura. Thanks for having us. 
I'm so happy to have you. So let's jump in. Tell us about Woodley and Lowe. What is that? Woodley and Lowe is a brand of um, wardrobe essentials that we created specifically for teen and tween girls, knowing that, you know, as early as about 10 years old, they stop wanting to wear um, their reliable kids brands and start wanting to wear what their bigger sisters are wearing, what they see teens wearing. Um, and that teens themselves also don't have a very good option when it comes to reliable everyday clothes that will last, that are high quality, good for planet and have good mess brand messaging behind them. Yeah. Are you finding that the demand is more on the mom side or more on the teen and tween girl side? I'm the mother of a, of a almost 12 year old. So she's right on the cusp as a, as a, you know, preteen. Um, but I find that she's perfectly happy with some of the horrible things that she picks out. It's really me that has the problem. So maybe talk to me about kind of how you how you think about that piece of your business. I mean, absolutely. I'm I'm the mother of three girls as well, and my oldest is going to be 17 this spring, and then I have a 13 year old and a nine year old. And I do think they're while they're happy to wear some of these brands out there that the moms might not like. They also know that they want to be doing something that's better for the planet. They don't, they know that they don't want fast fashion, but at the same time, that's kind of what they can afford on their babysitting dollars. So it's kind of a combination. We we really went went into this thinking, okay, moms are frustrated, the quality is not there, and the 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 um, brand messaging is not there for them and the clothes are kind of trashy. We want a better option, but we, we also wanted to make sure that we were coming at this so that the girls themselves thought it was kind of a cool brand. And, and so we wanted to target our initial marketing plan was really targeting girls through like Snapchat ads and through just communicating with them on TikTok and Instagram. Um, and really going more after the girls than the moms initially, because we wanted them to discover us. We knew that, that in order to be like a cool brand, we have to, we have to communicate with them and have them discover us. And then mom, they come home, bring it to mom, mom checks it out and says, wow, that this is a cool brand and, and we'll be willing to buy. I love that. So for both of you, this was essentially a pretty big career pivot in in starting this brand. Netta, why don't I turn to you and maybe each of you talk a little bit about your background and what made this so appealing? Sure. Um, I actually have spent, you know, my entire career in the retail space in one, in one form or another. Um, I started my career on the finance side as an equity analyst covering uh, specialty retailers and specifically with a specific focus, ironically, on teen retailers. Um, and this was at a time where, you know, the mall was king and teen retail was an actual um, sector in retailing that was covered by Wall Street analysts. Um, and, you know, Abercrombie, American Eagle, Aeropostale, Pacific Sunwear, Wet Seal, they were sort of like the reigning teen retailers. Um, and, you know, I, I then kind of transitioned um, into working for luxury retail companies, getting more involved in startups. Um, over the years, I, I did um, launch a startup in the fitness and wellness space. Um, I, it was, you know, a bookings aggregator and marketing platform for boutique fitness classes. Um, I, I started getting very invo more involved in startups from that point onward, um, but always sort of very kind of deep in retail, working with um, lifestyle retailers, et cetera. Um, and I started kind of a couple years ago thinking about a few different ideas. And and one of them was that, wow, you know, what happened to that teen retail space? You know, there's sort of, it's no longer what it once was. Retailing has evolved so much, but, um, you know, no one's really paying that much attention to the teen space anymore. Um, and so Rachel and I were introduced by a mutual friend and, you know, we were both kind of independently working on several ideas and, and kind of itching, each of us itching to start our, our next new thing. And, you know, when I sort of mentioned, you know, I think there's opportunity in the teen retail segment and Rachel as a mom of three tween and teen daughters immediately was like, oh my goodness, here are all the pain points. 
I see as a mother shopping for the, for girls this age. Um, and so we sort of, you know, came together and thought like, wow, the opportunity is so clear there. You know, while there are so many new brands coming to the space every day, primarily focused on millennials um, and moms, no one's really, you know, far focused on um, on Gen Z. And so we just, you know, came together and, and set out to build and started building um, pretty quickly. Yeah, it feels like you've hit this moment in time. Why do you think the retail space had sort of gotten away from this particular segment? I think because the segment was so focused on the mall and the mall mm -hmm. was sort of the epicenter of retailing for so long. Right. Um, and over the years, the mall has, you know, declined, you know, the popularity of, of shopping at the mall has sort of gone down as lifestyle retailers have, I mean, sorry, lifestyle centers have become more popular um, and really e-commerce and Amazon has started to rule the world of retail. Um, and so like the brick and mortar landscape has changed so much. Um, and, you know, as it has, those retailers sort of never really, you know, I would say American Eagle of all of them has has done really well in, in staying with its core customer and innovating and, you know, creating concepts like Aerie and some of their more recent concepts that they've launched. Um, but a lot of, you know, Aeropostale no longer exists. A lot of the other retailers focused on this space have sort of become stale. Abercrombie is not really even focused on a teen customer so much as it's more kind of focused on that older millennial and kind of trying to grab the nostalgia from them of when they were teens and shopped Abercrombie. Um, so, you know, I think it's a probably a combination of a few factors, one being just the shift in the overall retail landscape um, and, and two being also the rise of these fast fashion um, brands such as, you know, Shine or um, Brandy Melville and, and some of these fast fashion players that are simply, you know, offering very cheap clothing that's, you know, easily accessible to these girls, but not so much creating a brand or a community around it. Yeah. The digital piece of creating this brand was a really big part of what you did differently, it sounds like. Maybe talk about how, how you approached that and why that's working at this particular moment in time. So what we knew was there's a lot of opportunity in e-commerce right now and building a digital brand. Um, we looked at a lot of the, you know, some of the best in class digital players out there, what they were doing and figured, okay, a lot of these brands are focused on millennials. We're focusing on a different audience. Like Rachel said earlier, we really wanted to, you know, market to the teen herself and not just her mom. Um, and so we had to figure out like, where can we meet her? Where is she spending her time? Um, it's on Snapchat, it's on TikTok, it's on Instagram. Um, she's not opening emails as much as, you know, the millennial or her mom is. And so, you know, we, that really sort of informed how we were gonna market to this customer. Another thing that was very important to us from the beginning um, was really sort of creating a brand that was in a way co-creating. So we wanted to create a brand that was, you know, for teens by teens. Um, and, and by that, we started off even before we had a brand name with a um, private Instagram group of about 150 teens that was sort of like our little internal focus group. Um, and we actually hired two seniors in high school to run that group again, because we never sort of, we felt it was important to have this brand really kind of speak to the audience that it was being created for. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, this group helped us choose everything from our, um, our name to our logo, to our initial designs and colors. Um, and, and from that, you know, it allowed us to sort of take a very community first approach to building this brand. Um, we now have a very robust group of, of brand ambassadors. Um, we're all about sort of celebrating the real girl and not the influencer or, you know, the celebrity and sort of giving every girl a chance to sort of be a part of our brand um, and help us spread, spread our brand mission to other girls. Yeah. Rachel, maybe talk a little bit about the brand ambassador concept and how, how that's working and what that means. I was so intrigued by this. Yeah, of course. Well, you know, we thought, as, as Netta mentioned, it was really important to us to connect to our real customer, um, 
from the beginning. And we really felt, and I saw this with my daughters as well, the number one driver behind purchases for girls is what are their friends wearing? And it's not, you know, for millennials, a lot of DTC brands, um, you know, five, 10 years ago, were able to pop up easily with Instagram ads because people are just scrolling through their phone and clicking and buying, clicking and buying. These girls, Gen Z is not doing that. They're, they're looking out to see, you know, to some extent, what are celebrities and influencers wearing, but most importantly, what are their friends wearing? And so we really felt like we wanted to be a brand where we won these girls over one friend group at a time. So we were like, if we can get one, one girl in each high school to know about us and she spreads the words to her friends, that's a success. And so it's really more of like a grassroots effort. Um, that, that's on the one hand on the, the marketing side for us, but also um, really just to build the community. And, and really we felt it was important to amplify the voices of the real girls. Like the, what we were seeing that we thought was kind of reprehensible in the brand messaging that was out there for them was just the images of these like skinny blonde models, like one one type of model that that was being marketed to each of them. And we really felt like these girls were much more interested in like peer to peer, seeing what their friends are wearing, how they're how they're wearing it, and seeing real girls across the country. And it's been actually really amazing for me to see as we've grown our Instagram following and our ambassador group, just to see how they have connected and followed each other just on the basis of being another Woodley and Lowe ambassador. And I think that to me, like makes me, gives me like warm feelings when I see like the girls, you know, my daughter liking posts of people that she's never met before, but they're a Woodley and Lowe ambassador. So, yeah. I love that. I know your sizing is also a big piece of how you think about the brand and how you think about this concept of body image and and going about tackling it in a slightly different way. Maybe talk about the thinking behind A to E sizing versus the the uh, traditional numerical sizing. So there number. were a few things that went into this. First, um, knowing that, and I'm, I'm sure you're experiencing this with your 12 year old, but when the upper ends of kids brands that the sizes are related to ages, the ages make no sense. Like we, right. I, I was like, my kids, my kids have been a size 12 since they were eight years old. I don't understand right. how this is working. <laughs> and, um, and so we took a look at, I, what we did is we pulled some of the top kids retailers and the size charts from their websites. And I compared it to the pediatric growth chart and noticed that really like a size 12 or 14 on these kids charts was relating to like the bottom 20th percentile on the pediatric growth chart. So really they're not, you know, these, the traditional women's and kids size grading um, systems were, were, are from 1945. They're from um, studies done in World War II. And so no one's kind of caught up and thought like, how are people growing now? How do things want to fit? How do we want things to fit now? So that was one issue. Another issue was, like I mentioned before, you know, at 10 years old, my kids were starting to say that the, the clothes that I love to buy for them were too babyish. And so they wanted to go up into the women's brands, but there's no women's brand that goes small enough for them. So we knew we had, that was kind of our start. Like we wanted to start with a size that would be able to fit like the average 10 to 12 year old girl. And, um, and so, so from there we figured, you know, these girls are growing in such different ways and rates. They're not growing in a linear way. Some are like shooting up and then filling out. Some are, are gaining weight and then growing. So we knew that we had to also have a little bit of variability in heights as well. So we created five, five sizes that basically range from a size 12 youth to a size 10 to 12 women's. And, um, and within those sizes, our pants come in two lengths. And um, we thought that the letter system, we, we, we definitely wanted to stay away from being extra small or extra large because we thought that was kind of icky, especially for this age group. Mm -hmm. um, and so, so, you know, we actually talked about, um, you know, coming up with cute different names and combos, like coming up with word, like 
positive affirmation words and stuff like that. And, and my daughters looked at me and they're like, you're trying too hard. And so <laughs> we were like, okay, A through E it is. And that's great because it gives us room to like expand. We can go F, G, H, whatever we want to do. We can go up and down. It's a grid, it's flexible and it's easy. So yeah. that's- and, it, and, it, and what you just said also reinforces why it was so important to go to them as the primary customer versus the mom because exactly. of that inherent- conflict or that ick factor if your mom likes it then you can't it can't possibly be cool you shouldn't like it exactly um, yeah i also think you know again so like rachel said it's this we didn't want it to be associated with physical size or age you know we we found that what you know a 10 year old may not love that she has to wear a size 16 or vice versa you know a petite girl who's 14 and is still wearing size 10. Um, and so, you know, we, we thought that it was, it was really important to strip those kind of body stigma issues away from the, the name. Yeah. Was there a moment in time in which you had this idea? You, you two, as I understand it, you did know each other or sort of knew each other tangentially? Or how, how did this idea come about? And when did you recognize? Was it one of you that said, okay, I think there's an opportunity here and I'm going to look for a partner? Or how did it come together? So Netta and I were introduced by a mutual friend and we were both at the time. So I had owned and operated a retail bakery here in New York for about 12 years and had closed it um, with the idea, a, a new business plan immediately in mind and had been researching that for about a year um, and kind of spinning my wheels on it. And I was, uh, so a mutual friend who is also a female entrepreneur introduced the two of us um, because she was like, you know, Netta has a similar idea and it was more of like a fitness and wellness AI technology related idea. Uh -huh. um, I have no background in tech building technology or anything. This was just like, this would be really cool if this existed. And so we we connected and started talking about it. And we were both, we, we both agreed like this would be cool. We couldn't figure out necessarily what made it something that would be necessary for people and what, and if it really solved a pain point. So in that respect, is it worth investing a lot of money to hire someone to build this technology? If it's just something that's like, oh, this would be cool to have, but not, not that everybody's going to need to have. Mm -hmm. And so we, we spent, we spent a month or so talking it over and going back and forth on this one idea. And, and then Netta said to me, she, she, out of the blue, she was like, you know, don't, don't think I'm too ADD or anything, but what do you think of this idea? Teen girl athleisure. And, and, you know, as she mentioned before, she had been, you know, chewing on it for a while, like seeing this hole in the teen market. And, you know, as a mom of teen and tween girls, I, it immediately lit up and was like, yes, this is a huge problem. And so that's when we kind of, we saw that, you know, seeing that all of a sudden that this was a need, this was something we could solve for, a problem we could really solve for, that's what kind of made us start to get going. And um, and from there, you know, we, we started talking to investors who were interested in the idea, but, you know, wanted to see us build a little bit. And, and we just decided, you know, okay, let's take this step by step and let's see what we can build and keep talking to people along the way. But, but like, you know, I'm the kind of person that, you know, I see we're, we're at point A, we want to get to point B, these are the steps to get there, let's start doing it. And then, and then at, from B, we get to the next level and, and just kind of kept moving. And, you know, as you said before, neither of us really had a background in, you know, apparel production or fashion, um, per se. And, you know, although both tangentially with the retail business, but um, it's been a really interesting and exciting learning curve, um, learning how, how that works. And, you know, I was just um, in LA yesterday meeting with a new factory we're working with. And it's just fascinating to like see the business and see what goes goes into it and all the steps. And, and it's, it's, you know, it's something that on one hand is very, a very insider business, you have to have the right intros and everything. But on the other hand, is is very easy to learn and pick up. And if you meet the right people, you 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 can you know move forward. So, 
Yeah. To, to that point about meeting the right people, I'm intrigued by partnerships generally and collaborations. And we know that we're smarter and better when we have those partners, but it can be difficult sometimes to find that person because especially as you guys are with your co-founders, it's like a it's like another marriage almost. <laughs> Talk about advice that you have for picking the right partner and how your partnership works, strengths and weaknesses, how you complement each other, perhaps. I mean, I think it's definitely important to partner with someone where you can fill in each other's gaps, where you can, you know, if this person, you know, is interested in this thing, you're interested in another, or if you, if you're good at one thing, the other person is another, I think, um, and then I'll, I'll let Netta answer from her side. But for me, I think, one of the things that works really well for us is that, you know, I'm an extremely decisive person and I like to make decisions almost too quickly sometimes. And so I'll be like, okay, this is what I'm doing. This is here. And Netta is a more thoughtful person and is like, actually slow down. Like, let's, let's think about these other ideas and how we can think about it. And so I think that kind of balances, that's what I like that balances us is that we kind of, um, you know, I'll, I'll put a stake in the ground and Netta will like make me not act too fast. So, <laughs> and it's funny cause I see it as, you know, I always tell everyone, I'm like, my partner really executes well cause she just gets stuff done. If we decide <laughs> we're going to do something, she's already like I've half of it done. Um, so I think, you know, I think it's very, it, it's not easy to kind of, find a partner that you work well with in a lot of scenarios. And, and I think startups are very hard in general. Um, and there's a lot of ups and downs. And I think, you know, you, I think a lot of it is just like, you have to follow your gut. And when you meet someone, and if you're working on an idea together, and you know, if you feel like you both are in sync and you're aligned and you're both equally passionate about the idea and you, you're both, you know, you never want to partner with someone who's like only halfway in. Um, and, you know, I think that's really important is like you both have to be 100% in, um, you know, if this is going to be your full-time job and full-time priority, I think, you know, and, and also being able to respect your partner's like limitations, whether, you know, and, and respecting that like, you know, your partner may have a family and children and, and you know, being able to balance that. But um you know, you definitely hear about partnerships that go wrong and, you know, businesses that fall apart because of it. And I think, you know, we've read lot, seen lots of stories of different high profile startups in the media. Um, and, you know, I think for us, it's just I think it's a matter of just being grounded, being realistic with, you know, where we are in our business, what our capabilities are and, and where our, our short like comings are and where we need, where we have holes and where they need to be filled um, and, and sort of being reasonable, I guess, is, you know, I, I don't know if there's no perfect answer of like how you find that right partner. I definitely have met with people before I met Rachel um, that I just didn't feel like were aligned with me that I could not imagine working with. So I think it is just some of it's also a matter of like right place, right time, being introduced to the right person and, and both sort of, you know, knowing that you want to start something together, or believing in each other's ideas. Yeah. How about advice for working through conflict? Um, I mean, luckily we haven't had much conflict. There are definitely times I think where, you know, we may have different, we, you know, I can't lie and say that we've agreed on everything or, you know, we definitely have had different opinions. Um, and, you know, I think it's sort of like we, um, we sort of kind of know how each other works now and know how each other's minds work. And we sort of give each other the benefit of the doubt and let each other sort of okay, like she wants to do this. Like, I'm not sure I agree with it, but let's give it a shot. And, you know, let's figure, let's figure out how we can make this work and, and vice versa. Um, and I think yeah. I would add, I think we've also both gotten good at like kind of taking a second to um, listen to the, the argument of the other person and just kind of figure it out. But I, but I agree, like yes, there are times when either of us is like, okay, we're, we're going to do it that way. But we, I think we both 
have learned to to like take the time to like we both I think can thoughtfully lay out our argument for why we think it should be one way or the other and then pull points from each other like listen to each other and kind of pull points I think oftentimes I I feel like maybe more oftentimes we've ended up like negotiating and coming to something in between what, what the two of us had than than just going one way or the other yeah, I hear different points of view about whether partners need a partnership agreement or not. What's your view on when you're when you're going into um, developing a startup or some kind of an entrepreneurial idea with a partner? Do you need a partnership agreement? I mean, I think it's always a good idea to have something in writing. So I think you know we have an operating agreement that covers you know some of our stake in the business and our, our roles. Um, I do think it is a good idea. I've definitely worked with people on ideas before and, and, and it hasn't turned out the way we had expected. And, you know, a partner decides she wants to, you know, break away and take the idea and go with it. And so there are definitely risks to working with a partner and not having some sort of agreement in place. Um, you know, I want to, Anytime I work with someone, I want to believe in the good and believe that that would never happen, obviously. And, you know, I usually am sort of have a, a good sense of a person and, and can trust them. But I do think it's, it, it is important um, from a legal standpoint, especially when, um, you know, you're investing your own capital and time into a business. Um, I think it's important to have some level of, you know, protection against the risks that you're taking. Yeah, that's very good advice. Um, so there are an awful lot of people who are really rethinking, who have hit the reset button as a result of COVID and the pandemic and doing wholesale career shifts. And many people are thinking about entrepreneurship, um, maybe in a way that they might not have been thinking about it before. What advice do you have? I mean, launching into something like you, like you two have done, is not for the faint of heart. There's a high level of risk involved in any new startup or entrepreneurial kind of idea. What advice do you have for people who might be contemplating that? I mean, uh, first of all, I, I think you can only really go into entrepreneurship if you're if you are are willing to be a risk taker. Like that is the number one. I, to me, that is the the only quality you, that's really essential to being an entrepreneur because. I mean, you, and you have to think about where you are and what you're putting at risk. And so is it, you know, are you putting your children's college funds and everything at risk? Like you have to, you really have to imagine. I, I mean, it's really exciting as an entrepreneur to have an idea and you never think it will fail. It's always going to be a huge success and you're going to be the next unicorn and worth a trillion dollars and whatever <laughs> that, I mean, you have to have that spark in order to put in the amount of work that, that it requires but you also have to realistically think about if if it is a failure, what is on the line and what am I losing? And really think about that and be smart about that. Um, and if, you, if you're not in a place where you can invest the money or the time or whatever it takes to get there, is there a, a smaller, a smaller way you can test out your idea and, and without taking as much risk, without leaving your existing job? whatnot. Um, but I really, I really think it's, it's, you never want to think about the failure side. As an entrepreneur, you only think, well, of course, it'll never fail. This is the most the best idea ever. Um, but you you really have to think about that in order to take the risk. And because entrepreneurship is a series of getting to the edge of a cliff and having to jump. Right, right. Do you have Over a process? It, is there a process that you've developed for maybe calculating that risk and, you know, how far you're willing to go? Like what, what process do you use or what advice would you have for someone in terms of knowing how to measure the downside risk? I mean, I would just add that, you know, I started my first business when about 10 years ago or a little over 10 years ago, and I was in a very different place and mindset that time around versus this time around. Um, in, in what in what way? Tell, I mean, tell me I you. had you know just gotten married, had one child. I was I was much younger. I was sort of you know everything. I I almost went into it not knowing what was on the other side and just didn't even think about anything. You know, every decision was just like okay, here like 
we'll put the money in and we'll just start doing it. And um, I think the second time around, you know, a couple of kids more later and 10 years older, I sort of, you know, understood that the stakes were higher. And, you know, I've already I've already started one business. I've already invested X amount of my dollars and my hours into building a business. And and, you know, this time around, like it really has to work. It really has to be worth it. And, you know, it made me sort of my risk tolerance was honestly a little bit lower and than it was the first time around. And it made me sort of really think harder on every decision that we make, every check that we write, um, every sort of, you know, I'm not able to be as sort of spontaneous this time around, um, which is good and bad, to be honest. Maybe it holds me back slightly, but I also think it makes us a little bit more, um, you know, thoughtful and rational in our approach. Yeah. I don't know if Rachel and, agrees and, and, you know, she's also a sec her second time around too. Yeah. And I think it's hard to, to really come up with like, how do you measure the risk for something? Because it, it's different for everyone, right? Like as, you know, it's different for each person, for where they are in their life, for, you know, what they are able to put on the line. Like it, there's really no answer for how do you measure it? It's really, really a very personal decision. Yeah. I find that so interesting because, you know, as we get older, we know so much more, yeah. right? And and that is a gift and a blessing. At the same time, I do think that it causes you sometimes to maybe second guess yourself a For bit sure. more than you might otherwise. And I find that so ironic because you know so much more. Mm -hmm. I definitely agree. Yeah, I could not agree more. And it's something that I think is so funny. Like we talk about this all the time that, you know, the the 30 under 30 entrepreneurs get so much attention, like these young people, you know, building this idea. And yeah, of course they are. Like they have they have so much less on the line and they have they have they know so much less. So they're they're just like I mean, I think I was I was 30 just under 30 when I started my bakery and I was like, well, this is I'm gonna do this and this and this and this is gonna work and this is the best. And you're you don't you're not listening to anyone and you're, you have no experience to base stuff on. It's pure instinct and gut, which is right. fantastic. And when it works and it's great that, that people have the courage to do that. But at the same time, I do think there's a lack of attention paid to like middle-aged entrepreneurs who are also trying something new and doing something a little bit less flashy, but with more wisdom behind it and more thoughtfulness behind it sometimes. Yeah. What advice do you have for her recognizing that this is a thing that we often do to ourselves? I don't know if men do this as much as women. My guess is no, but we're not talking to them. Um, <laughs> so w w what's your advice for plowing through that, recognizing that this tends to be a thing um, that can weigh us down? How do you how do you plow through that? my biggest piece of advice is not to compare yourself to what what others are doing and how fast they're doing it you are on your own trajectory you know where you want to go um if you see ideas that that take you in a little bit of a different direction and and that's a positive thing do it but don't get bogged down in saying like this person has such a similar idea and they're raising you know tens of millions of dollars and they're getting there faster than me like you are on your own trajectory and and the important thing is really just to to keep focused on your plan and keep moving ahead yeah nada you're nodding your head you have, yes, you have other I thoughts on that i agree i mean i always say it's and i have to say it to myself and people have told me this it's stay in your own lane um, I think that's really key. It's so easy to get distracted and discouraged by, you know, the media talking about these flashy startups and, and you know, how much money they're raising and what their valuation is. And, you know, you hear about it and then all of a sudden you don't hear about it when the startup maybe, you know, withers away. And of course, then there are, as Rachel mentioned earlier, the unicorns that we keep hearing about and who are you know, valued at a billion dollars and they started from this little tiny idea and somehow, you know, every step along the way, they got very lucky as well as they, you know, obviously executed really well too. But I think it's very, um, it's very easy to fall into this trap of like constantly, you know, looking at, at what's happening 
with other brands that you're hearing about and forgetting that they are sort of the 0.01% of businesses out there that are just really kind of making it and kind of these overnight successes. Um, so I think it is very important to stay focused um, and, you know, still being mindful of your competition and what others are doing. I think it's it's import very important to have a strong um, grasp of the landscape around you. But I also think, you know, it's really staying focused and staying in your lane is key. Yeah, that's really good advice. Um, one topic that oftentimes comes up when I have female entrepreneurs on is the challenges associated with getting funding. And I would think too, that if you're constantly told no, as you're going through the process of trying to get funding, you know, and, and I, don't, I don't recall exactly how you've funded this business. Um, I think you guys are bootstrapped, yes? Mm -hmm. yes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, but, but constantly hearing no too, when you're already kind of second guessing yourself, maybe any thoughts on how that landscape looks? Is it still as bleak as it has been in the past? We now have several female billionaires in a way that we didn't a decade ago, which is very exciting. But maybe talk about Netta, the landscape from the standpoint of of fundraising, raising money from one of these ideas, uh, what that looks like, and also uh, how you weather what will inevitably in any business, you're going to have rejection, right? And not letting that completely discourage you. Um, great question. I do think these female billionaires are definitely um, helping our cause. And, you know, they're making investors in the whole world realize like what female founders are capable of. And I, so I think it's very inspiring and, and, and great for um, for female founders. I do think, you know, we're be as a result, we are seeing a lot more female investors coming to the space and really wanting to support and invest in female founded businesses. Um, so in the last kind of handful of years, probably in the last four or five years, we're seeing a lot more of that happening. Um, you know, fundraising is still hard. You know, I think these investors, angel investors and VCs are uh, pitched by thousands of, of, you know, companies a week, probably some of them. And, um, you know, it's still not easy to just raise money. And so I think you have to have a few things to successfully kind of catch the eye of a, you know, catch the interest of a venture capitalist or high profile angel investor from the start. And that is, you know, an entrepreneur who has a strong track record, you know, perhaps like has a previous exit of a big name startup, um, a potentially, you know, what we're seeing is investors like to invest in someone who not just a celebrity, but maybe an influencer who has a very big following. Mm -hmm. You know, if that influencer has over a million or two million followers, then perhaps, you know, the investor feels then, okay, if they have this many people following us, then they'll at least have, you know, a portion of that following buying into their new business. And so I think, you know, there are, there are several key things that investors are looking for. Um, you know, when we started, when we started this business, we thought, okay, we'll, you know, we'll follow that sort of direct to consumer playbook that we saw so many direct to consumer businesses kind of come along over the years. Um, you know, Warby Parker was obviously one of the pioneers in this, but you know, we'll follow, we'll raise, you know, $10 million in VC money. We'll pour a bunch of that into digital marketing and we'll sort of do what we saw so many other businesses do. And as we started diving into it, we were, you know, we came, we met a few realities really quickly. One was that it's no longer easy um, to raise that type of money as a direct to consumer businesses. And, and, you know, the other complicating factor was that we started trying to raise money right when COVID hit, right. uh, when the world really turned upside down and, you know, investors definitely, you know, for our first handful of months that we were trying to raise money, it was just kind of the worst time in the world that you could ever try and raise money for any type of business. Um, and as, you know, as the investment community started kind of coming back to life and, and investors started, you know, taking more investments, we also found ourselves in a space that investors weren't super interested in, um, apparel, direct to consumer apparel. Um, and so, you know, we thought, okay, all right, we have to build, we have to bootstrap this and build, and we have to show traction, we have to show our vision, um, and then we'll be able to raise money. And so, 
you know, I think one key piece of advice we now, you know, we both have is that, you know, for any founder, it's like you need to have an alternate plan. You cannot bank on raising money. Um, you need to fig you need to have a plan for if we don't raise money, here's how we're gonna continue to execute. Here's how we're gonna continue to bring this concept to life. And, you know, this is the path we're gonna take. Um, I think one mistake founders probably make, and we we found this, we made this mistake ourselves was we always had a plan where we were gonna raise X amount of money by X date. And so we sort of built towards with that assumption. And I think you make different decisions and, and investments in the business when you think you're going to raise a certain amount. Um, and so I think that's where you can find yourself, you know, getting into challenging times if you, if you plan that way. And so we now know, like, we need to figure out, like, here's, here's, how, here's what we're going to invest in. Here's how we're going to operate, knowing that there is a chance we may not raise this money by this date. Um, so, you know, yeah. yeah. And you know, and I would just add to that also, like, as as an entrepreneur, you really have to think about, like, why you're getting into it. Why why are you starting this business? Are you starting it up because you want the thrill of raising venture capital money and keep your valuation, keep mounting? And, and if that's the case, then, you know, scroll through Crunchbase and figure out, like, what are the hot new industries that people are investing in and start up something random just based on the industry that's getting a lot of heat. You know, like Netta mentioned, not a lot of people are interested in, in apparel, but we are passionate that this is the idea. We are we are passionate about our idea. We know there's a need for it. And so rather than kind of recontrive our business to make it something that VCs want to invest in, we are we are set on, okay, how do we make this work for ourselves? Because we know that we know that this is a great idea. Yeah. Influence is a big topic that we talk about on this podcast. And we look at the different levers that help us build influence, which then helps us achieve our goals. As you think about the brand and as you're, and, and also related to your individual influence, how do you think about this concept of influence and what you're trying to accomplish? So for me, I, I kind of feel like <clears throat> the way we approach it with Woodley and Lowe is that influence is like a little bit of an echo chamber. So we we kind of noticed, we started on the one hand, we see these brands that are out there for teens. We don't like what they're, the message they're sending them. We want to send a better message. But we, we also knew that there was a demand for a better message because we saw our, you know, these high school girls who are passionate about you know, human rights, treating each other with kindness, being supportive, seeing each other as real people, being body positive. And so the, you know, we were picking up on that is what they said. So they were influencing us mm -hmm. that that was the need. And so we are kind of taking their voices and amplifying that. So we're taking, we're listening to our community, hearing what it is that they have to say and what they care about. And then we're amplifying that and hoping that that then influences the next girl in the next town or the next state and, and, and kind of reiterating, having it echo back and forth um, and, and, and just, you know, amplifying what they're into. And, and to me, that's how I think we're using our influence. I love that. Maybe talk uh, for a moment about what's next for the brand. I know you're looking at things like a social impact component and maybe a course, things like that. Maybe talk about what you sort of are looking to in the future. Sure. Um, you know, for our ambassador program, we are really looking to sort of scale it um, as well as figure out, you know, what is it that we can pro provide our ambassadors beyond just a discount code? And so that's where we're excited to kind of develop sort of like a masterclass series for our ambassadors, for example, um, whether it's they want to learn about, you know, starting an apparel business. Okay, let's bring on, you know, some founders from different brands and do a panel discussion. Um, you know, we want to get the ambassadors involved more with uh, with us behind the scenes and what we're building um so we think you know that's one thing another area that we are excited to go deeper in is just creating more content um you know more content that engages with our community that you know we never set out to just 
be an apparel brand. We always saw our business as an opportunity to sort of create a platform for Gen Z and an area where content and commerce converge. And, you know, we always kind of likened ourselves to a goop one day and creating sort of the goop for Gen Z. Mm -hmm. um, and then, you know, I'd say the other bucket that I think is very important as we grow is how do we have more kind of of a brick and mortar presence. We're currently testing out a pop-up in LA um, for the holiday season. And, you know, what we've learned is as a new brand, being able to have a space where people can come, especially as, as this generation definitely is one that likes to go shopping and go into stores. Um, how do we have more experiences, whether it's ultimately our own brick and mortar stores um, or more sort of activations and, and pop-up experiences? And and I would just add to that also, you know, as Netta had mentioned before about, you know, growing up in the 90s, we loved the mall and the mall was the center of everything. And, you know, that's not how it is anymore. And, and e-com has taken over, but e-com is a very dry experience. It's very transactional. You you know where you want, you know you want to go to this brand, buy this one thing, check in, check out, you're gone. And like, how can we for Gen Z bring some of the experiences that were so fun about being at the mall and incorporate that into the e-com shopping experience, whether it's mm -hmm. like seeing other people who you don't know, but are like you trying stuff on or, um, you know, learning about different, you know, charities to be involved in or you know, just seeing and hearing and connecting a little bit more. And, and we're exploring different ways that we can we can bring that online through our content. Yeah, I'm not sure if you mentioned this earlier or not, but it's a point that's worth reinforcing. And that is that a certain percentage of your sales goes toward a series of charities that the consumer, the girl or uh, a young woman or her mom can pick um, across different different uh, options, um, which I think is a really interesting component of that community building that you're doing. It's really amazing. Thank you. I mean, we felt very strongly when we were first starting the business, like we knew we knew that there, there was this idea out there, this this problem we needed to address. But we also we didn't want to just do it just to make money. We didn't want to do it just to pump more garbage into the world. We really felt strongly that like it is our response, our social responsibility that if we are going to create more product in the world, we have to do something that like give back some portions to, to benefit. And, um, and it, it was really ultimately, and yes, like our market cares deeply about it and they respond very well and we do it for them as well. But it, it really was like a personal responsibility feeling for the two of us. And so from the very beginning, we decided, okay, we're going to give back 3%. And, and why 3%? Because, you know, a lot of companies, we've talked to a lot of people who say to us, wow, if you guys give back 3%, most say 1% if they give back. And so, you know, why three? And for us, it kind of came down to, there were three different buckets that we knew that we wanted to give back to. There's sustainability and anything that any organization that is benefiting the planet and, um, you know, eco um, organizations. Then um, there was, women's empowerment we we are we are working with girls we are all about you know pumping them up making them strong women so women's empowerment was important but then in general just basic human rights and supporting each other and supporting our differences and and being inclusive and and making sure that people are heard and you know and then blanketing all uh, blanketing those two mental health is super important to us as well but but we kind of saw those three buckets um, and, and decided like that, those are the directions we want to go in and, and let's do like 1% for each. So, yeah, I love that. And I also love the optionality where you're not necessarily deciding for the whole community what that looks like. You're recognizing that she may have a different point of view about what she wants to give back to. And I personally really love that. Another piece that caught my attention was an approach on, um, sort of your return and recycling, um, I'm not sure how to describe it, but you have a you have a policy on return and recycling. I love that because we I have such trouble getting rid of stuff and knowing like where the best places are to recycle clothing or to give it away or what to do with it. Maybe talk about that that piece as well. Yeah, so that also was something that was an, 
like an immediate problem, especially like girls grow so quickly, right? And so you have, I mean, I, I have three, so we have a lot of hand-me-downs, but then <laughs> we do have bags of stuff. And um, so we, we from day one, we're like, we have to have an evergreen return policy. And so if at any point she grows out of something, she gets tired, she wants to trade in her blue hoodie for a green one, whatever it is, send it back and and we will take care of it and and give you a partial credit in return so you can keep shopping then we assess okay what kind of shape is it in when it gets back to us can we resell it can we um donate it can we upcycle it a lot of the stuff can't technically be recycled because it's blended fabrics but there are options and we can take care of it in a more responsible way and we have more um we can leverage our size to to do that whereas you know mom and daughter at home, it's much harder for them. And right. one other thing that's super interesting that we launched that was specifically out of um, Gen Z interest is we have a resale platform on our website. So so she can do this herself if she has a sweatshirt that she wants to just get the latest color in or whatever. Um, she can, anyone can go to our site and either buy or sell um, used Woodley and Lowe products. So she can go, she can list, she can take pictures, she can list it. Um, and and when someone buys it from her, we send the shipping label and make it super easy. And she can either get 80% of the sale price in cash, or she can get 110% of the sale price in store credit. So that way she can she can make that decision for herself. She can take responsibility for, for making money off of the product or whatever she wants to do with it. And that is super popular with this generation. They're, they're all on these resale websites. They're all into like thrifting and, and you know, resale shopping. So. Right. That, that, that's, an am that's amazing. I don't think I've seen that anywhere else. That is really, really an incredible idea. I love that. Okay. We're getting to the end of our time. I'd love it if each of you would leave us with maybe a single piece of advice. Maybe it's something that you wish you had known when you were just starting this business, or maybe sort of flashing backwards even further, maybe when you were originally starting out in your career, <laughs> I think I'll, I guess I'll start I, the uh, flashing back to the beginning of, of my career, I think is a good prompt for me because I, I think I would say like, don't, don't get caught in what you think you ought to do because that's what other people around you are doing. Um, you know, I spent seven years in investment banking because I got out of school. I went into investment banking analyst program and, um, you know, just kept going on and, and yes, like I learned a lot, but I didn't have my eyes open to other opportunities that were around me. And, and it took me seven years to realize, I, you know, finance is great, but I really want to be an entrepreneur. And and so I wish I'd had my eyes open a little bit more to like, you know, this is in the time of the early dot com bubble and stuff. And I wish I'd had my eyes open to other opportunities that were not that were a little bit more out there at the time. And instead of just doing what I thought I ought to do. Yeah, I love that. Netta, how about you? Um, I would say, you know, for someone just starting out in their career to kind of know that the path is not always linear, um, particularly if you are someone who is interested in entrepreneurship to expect that the path is going to be windy at times um, and that it's just not easy. You know, I think there's so much glamorization of, of people glamorize this idea of start of entrepreneurship. And I think it's important to know that it actually does take a ton of sweat um, and tears and, and money to sort of follow this path. And, and, you know, it's not for faint of heart, but I do think um, also, you know, it's incredibly rewarding when you're, when you're creating and you're building something and you're bringing something to life and, and you're able to sort of work and operate in some, in a space that you're passionate about. Yeah, I love that. Rachel and Netta, what a pleasure to meet you and talk to you both today. This was fantastic. Thank, Thank you. You too, so Laura. To learn more about Woodley and Lowe co-founders Netta Funk and Rachel Tabo, check out the show notes for this episode, episode 173. Friend, this is our next to last episode of 2021, and I am already busy working on 2022 
to create more great topics and to engage more guests to make your investment of time in this podcast worthwhile. As you have ideas for topics and guests that you would find helpful or that you'd like to hear from, please be sure to let me know. As always, I am so grateful to have you here and I am incredibly gratified that you're continuing to find this investment in you worthwhile. You take care, have a great week, and I'll see you soon.